Hello and welcome to the latest Science of Sport podcast. I'm your host Matt Solomon and today I'm delighted to be joined by Sam Balak. So Sam has completed his PhD in muscle physiology and since then he's worked at Parkendale Training Centre in the Netherlands with the Dutch Olympic team. Specifically over the last eight years he's worked with BMX, track cycling, athletics, judo, snowboard and skeleton. And in the preparation for Tokyo 2020, he was heavily involved in advising numerous coaches and athletes on how to optimally prepare for hot and humid conditions in Tokyo. So we're going to steal a little bit of his knowledge today. And without further ado, it's time to welcome Sam onto the show. So Sam, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having me, Matt. It's an absolute pleasure to uh, to share some insights uh, today about this topic uh, with you and uh, some listeners. And uh, to be part of this interesting uh, uh, podcast. Thank you very much, mate. So, can you give us a quick introduction as to who you are and what you've been up to until now? Well, I'm uh, working as an applied sport uh, scientist, focusing on physiological topics. Uh, my official uh, term is embedded uh, scientist physiology, but I'm working on different uh, physiological topics like recovery, conditioning, and also heat. Uh, it's something we are going to talk today about. Uh, and then my current role, I work at Bartonel, which is uh, the Dutch Olympic Training Center, and I work with different sports like uh, BMX cycling, athletics, track cycling, judo, but also some winter sports like uh, snowboard and uh, skeleton. Yeah, so we had the uh, Rob Walsh on recently as well, and he uh, he managed yeah. to drop your name into the conversation. So we're not going to discuss the testing that you've done with Rob today, but we are going to discuss how you uh, basically looked at training in heat. And of course, you did this towards the, the Tokyo Olympics. So that had yes. a really big impact on people's performances. But when we look at training in heat, first things first, what kind of impact does that have on performance? So if we're going to just say compare uh, training in the Netherlands, which is nice and cold most of the time, maybe raining, <laughs> and they're going to go and train in, in huge heat, uh, let's say uh, 35 degrees, what's the difference? Well, it's a big, big difference. Uh, it's, it could be even to 20 or even 30% uh, decrease in, uh, in performance. And uh, that's because of the well, the heat, uh, but also humidity. Um, and when we talk about a 20-30% drop, uh, it's mostly seen, of course, in endurance athletes. Um, we did a lot of testing with those uh, kind of athletes, but actually also with sprint or explosive athletes. And I would recommend them also to to do some some kind of training in the heat uh, before they go to some kind of well uh, competition in the heat. Uh, but Although that's uh, not not exactly for their uh, performances, more to cope with the heat itself, and uh, well, for example, to have a good reaction time. But for a, a clear example of, of the impact of heat um, uh, on performance, um, well, there's a study by uh, Sebastian Rekina. I'm not sure whether I pronounce it correctly, but it's, uh, from 2015, uh, where he had some uh, cyclists uh, do a, a performance time trial. And the average uh, power output was about 300 watts. And that was in a normal conditioning. Uh, when they performed the same test in, in the hot and the heat, uh, the power was about 50 watts less. So that's a drop of about 15-20%. Um, so you can say without any hesitation that uh, uh, heat uh, well, decreases your performance and any preparation to the heat will uh, help aid your performance in the heat. So I would say uh, the following sentence would really count for training in the heat. So if you don't prepare yourself, if you fail to prepare, you will prepare to fail. 
<laughs> Absolutely excellent. And obviously you're, you're a, a physiologist, right? So in terms of the, the background physiology which underpins this, what's happening inside the body? So outside it's, it's really hot, maybe it's humid too. Um, but mm-hmm. inside your body, what's going on and why does it then lead to that, that huge decrease in performance? Well, uh, that's an interesting question. Um, from a physiological perspective, it's actually with every movement uh, you do, with every training a human does, uh, the body will produce uh, heat. Uh, while using energy for performance, uh, a human body is not more efficient than about 20%. So that means that the other 80% of the energy is converted to heat. Uh, and so even in a normal uh, session with normal temperature, a body a core temperature will rise uh, easily above 38 degrees Celsius. However, uh, in the heat, this will uh, go faster and you can reach higher temperatures. Often, uh, well, the 40 degrees boundaries is called, is named, but um, uh, as a dangerous border not to cross to, but actually uh, some elite athletes do go higher. A uh, study by the team of uh, Julien Perriard uh, done at the World Championships uh, cycling in uh, 2016 in, in, in Qatar. They saw that some uh, elite athletes were actually getting uh, to 41 degrees Celsius and still medal. Um, on, on the contrary, uh, there's also athletes who are already feeling bad at 39 degrees Celsius. So the, the four degrees isn't the black or white border, I would say. Uh, but we also know that the higher the core temperature uh, you get, the higher chance you will have of a heat stress or something like that, a heat stroke. And in any circumstances, uh, you want to avoid that. But if you actually focus on what, what's happening inside the body, what you said is, um, well, first of all, we see that the heart rate uh, will be higher when you train uh, or perform in the heat. And actually, the body uh, will try to lose some heat uh, by sending more blood uh, to the skin, basically to increase your sweat rate. So uh, as a result of that, uh, there will be a lower venous uh, return, uh, which will increase your heart rate. And therefore, during the first couple of days in the heat, any session in the heat first will uh, will increase your heart rate by maybe even 10 to 20 beats per minute. And in addition to that, we also know that uh, the gross efficiency, so the 20% I just uh, mentioned, uh, will drop to 90 or even 18% uh, when the core body temperature uh, goes up. So there's some kind of rule, Hein uh, Dahlen, from a professor from the Vue University in Amsterdam, published uh, an article in 2006 where he uh, had a nice correlation between that, the core body temperature and efficiency. And with every uh, one degree uh, you uh, increase in temperature, there's a 1% drop in efficiency. So both uh, the lower venous return and both, and as well, the gross efficiency will decrease your performance uh, capacity in the heat. So you're, you're getting less blood back to the heart? And then yeah, you're yeah. becoming less efficient as well. So that, that doesn't sound like an ideal combination. Um, exactly. You, you mentioned earlier that uh, athletes should go and acclimatize, right? So um, what what does that mean and how do they do it? Like it's easy to say, oh, you should go to that competition early, but it might not always be possible. So how, how do they go about acclimatizing? Well, this science will tell will tells us a lot about that. Uh, so... Uh, all athletes, especially endurance athletes, do need to prepare for the heat. And uh, basically, the science tells us that uh, about, you need about 10 to 14 days of training in the condition you're going to uh, perform in. Um, and those 10 to 14 uh, sessions uh, need to, uh, well, in those sessions, you need to uh, get your uh, uh, core temperature elevated to at least 38.5 degrees Celsius for as long as about 30 to 60 minutes. 
to give your body a real signal to adapt to the heat. Uh, but because in the end, uh, you want to learn your body, that your body will learn uh, to lose its heat better. And the only or well, the most efficient way to do that is to increase your sweat. So more sweat. Always nice. Um, however, we also know that um, uh, it's quite individual and some people will need more sessions than others. But on, in general, you can say those 10 to 40 days is a, a rule of thumb. Uh, but if you want to follow uh, your adaptation your, your, to the heat, your acclimatization, uh, you can do some measurements. Uh, so we, what we did, uh, for example, uh, we measured sweat rate, uh, salt and sweat core temperature and also heart rate, of course, which is a logical one to follow and to see how uh, you will adapt in a consecutive days uh, to the heat. Um, but maybe nothing about uh, elite athletes. We know that uh, elite athletes, uh, well, they, they, they have some, most of them have some experience already uh, in the heat, so they don't start at zero level. Um, and, and some other considerations maybe to for, for the acclimatization is that uh, when you well, you mentioned uh, well, we're well. I'm working in the Netherlands. It's not always hot, but sometimes already May June uh, you can have a warm period uh, uh, where the temperature can suddenly rise to 25 degrees. So sometimes athletes will already have some heat in the body, if I call it, can call it like that. So that's uh, important for your uh, whole planning of your acclimatization. And also some uh, interesting thing is that uh, the actual sessions you do uh, might. Uh, be also, I have to put it in another way, some sessions are more suited for the heat and for acclimatization than others. Basically, when you, when you focus on quality or intensity in the training, so sprint sessions, for example, they are generally less suited uh, for uh, acclimatization because it's harder in those training sessions to get your temperature over 35.5 degrees and also for that long period. And contrary, Sessions where volume is important, so endurance sessions, uh, recovery sessions where you do a run or a ride for an hour or so, those sessions are really perfect for acclimatization because it's a long session where you can well, easily get uh, the, the body uh, temperature up. But remember one thing, uh, which is in my point really important, that's uh, um, extra stress. So the heat is an extra stressor on your body. So you have to make uh, a planning, have to make a structure for recovery as well. There needs to be a, a proper recovery uh, for those sessions. So, when we when we take all into uh, this all into account, right? Like, what do what do people do who um, who don't have the access to this this heat? I mean, what what did you guys do in the build up to Tokyo? Yeah, that's a good question because we uh, we in the Netherlands don't have that uh, so warm summers like Australia, or maybe southern Spain or something, or Japan. For, for this instance, uh, we have climate rooms, and um, uh, we have one uh, particular in uh, at Papendal where we uh, can manipulate the both the humidity and the temperature. Uh, well, in any degree we want, so we can uh, simulate Tokyo, 32 degrees Celsius, with about 78 percent of uh, of humidity, or we can go to the Sahara, put it on 45 degrees Celsius, with maybe I don't know 20, 30 percent humidity. So in that way, uh, we can prepare the athletes uh, for the well, specific conditions they might met, uh, meet in the in the uh, well, in the, in the performance they're gonna have. So is that way, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, there's 
as effectively, and I, I'm fortunate to have seen it once and very fortunate to not have had to and any exercise in it, but um, there's effectively just a room which you which you heat up, right? Um, yeah, obviously, yeah. that's it's well insulated and it's very well controlled. It's not just chucking on the central heating, but yeah, um, yeah. it's it's a case Actually, of... It is just a case. Is, is it that? Is that the secret? <laughs> yeah, it's, well, it's not a secret. A lot of uh, things we do, it's not rocket science because... No, the, the, the particular room uh, we're talking about, the climate room, is indeed good insulated and, well, it's uh, <laughs> it's a good room and, and we can test everything. But we also have the stories of people who go to altitude and, well, of course, it's not warm there, but they do want to do something uh, on, uh, on uh, acclimatization uh, and preparing for the heat. So you can just have your room, maybe your, your toilet room, I don't know, uh, a small room, get some uh, uh, steamers in, uh, make some water, Oh, well, boil some water, the humidity will rise suddenly, uh, heat is on, and you have your own private, uh, uh, not really controlled uh, uh, climate room. But in the end, it doesn't really matter whether it's 32 degrees or 28 degrees, as long as you put a well, proper stressor on your body for the heat. No, I think that's actually excellent. And you've mentioned humidity a few times. Uh, what's the difference between heat and humidity when it comes to performance? Because... Yeah, you could, you could, for example, in, to use your, your examples previously, you could be doing a, an ultra marathon in the Sahara, but that's obviously very different to the humidity of Tokyo. So is, is yeah. that, is that something that impacts performance differently? Yeah, really good question. Um, um, actually, humidity is an extra burden on your body. Uh, basically, uh, well, it also impairs, uh, your performance in the heat by making it more difficult, uh, to evaporate sweat from your skin. Uh, so therefore, the cooling effect of sweating uh, is decreasing. And if you, it, maybe uh, some listeners will notice, but if the temperature rises to 35 degrees or even higher, especially higher, uh, the only way to cool down is via sweating. So if that sweating is not uh, working properly anymore, not working efficient anymore, uh, basically you're in trouble. <laughs> and that makes the urge of preparing yourself for that heat um, with humidity uh, even even higher. Um, so it works a little bit differently than uh, high ambient temperature because uh, basically that's a direct effect on a, a faster increase for uh, cold body temperature. This is actually making your own uh, body's cool with uh, own body's uh, cooling system uh, working less efficient. So although they're a little bit uh, different theoretically, I would say in practical uh, practical terms they uh, they work uh, quite similarly and they have the same effect on performance. It uh, drops in uh, high humidity. So it's it's uh it's adding more things to that to that stressing system, right? So if you've got yeah. heat of let's say thirty two degrees in Tokyo and the humidity, then it's a, an increased stressor, and you can expect uh, more decreases in performance. Yeah, exactly. So uh, it's 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 a plus plus. So it works together, and it will get an extra boot. And maybe also interesting, uh, some people actually uh, uh, find the humidity uh, more challenging. Uh, and even even though they would have prepared properly for the, the events they 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 they, they had an, uh, sorry, not the event but the the the, the temperature uh, when they actually arrive at a really humid environment some people uh, actually have a feeling that they have a, like a they breathe heavier or they have a shortness of breath so in any case it's, it's a small thought to uh, get some taste of the actual heat the actual conditions you have in the local uh, places where you, where you go to for your competition. And then you come back Maybe to that, that 10 to 14 days, right? That you, you discussed yeah. earlier. 
Yeah, but a tent of 14 days might be in a climate room or might be in a sauna or might be on a, in a warm bath. You have to do anything uh, to uh, increase your body temperature to 38.5 degrees. In my opinion, uh, uh, just actively uh, getting to there is better than passively with a warm bath or a sauna. But if actively isn't possible, you can, you can uh, uh, change that with the, the passive methods like the sauna or the, the warm bath. Absolutely fantastic. So when when you are in that situation, right, and let's say you're in something that's above thirty degrees and you want to cool down, and this could be this could also be in in Europe, right? Like you could in the summer, like you mentioned, you could be above thirty degrees and you want to make sure that you're staying cool enough to keep your performance at a high level. What are the things that athletes can do from the the highest level all the way down to the lowest level to solve that problem? Well, that's that's the that's a one million million dollar question. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to give you a million dollars for it. I'm sorry, mate. Ah, oh, oh, damn it, damn it. No, it's uh, yeah, it's of course we, we we've mentioned the acclimatization. Uh, actually, hydration is an important thing as well. Uh, um, but of course, the cooling is uh, is there, and there's so many ways uh, to cool down. Uh, maybe some of your listeners have also watched the marathon of the Tokyo Olympics. I've watched it uh, really interestingly, but you. Um, uh, both from uh, from a Dutch perspective as well as uh, professionally, but uh, you would have seen cooling caps. You've seen uh, caps filled with ice, different shapes of icing bags, uh, wrist cooling, and of course hydration, water, cool water, sporting drinks, special shirts, everything uh, to get the the sun blocked uh, or the wind passed through your shirt better. Uh, some athletes even uh, lifted their shirts uh, during the marathon to let the wind better evaporate uh, the, the sweat of the skin. So all kinds of different ways to cool that. So there's uh, tons of different ways. Um, but in the end, if you if you want to look at it more structurally, uh, what matters most is how you can maximize the cooling with, within the boundaries of your own sport and of your own body. Uh, that means that you need to do this individualized. And I'll come back to the actual methods, but... Um, well, uh, we have we know the effectiveness of, of certain uh, different cooling strategies in general. And I mean, uh, there's published quite a, a lot of things about that. A really nice review from uh, Kuhn Bungers and Thijs Eisvogels in 2017 uh, put it in a summary where you could see that, uh, well, you can, you can use uh, cooling methods uh, pre, so before your competition, during a post. And some Interfaces are better in do uh, working better uh, before the race. Some uh, interfaces are better suitable for uh, during the race or after the race. And also, some interventions are good at making you feel better, so you feel like you're colder. But they don't actually physiologically do that much. So, for example, mental. Um, but another uh, thing, uh, some some other uh, will actually physiologically cool you down, maybe even a degree. So you, you go from 38 degrees to 37 back uh, after you're warming up, for example. So you need to know that, that there's a, a quite of a big playing field here with playing around with different protocols, different uh, uh, strategies to cool down. And there's another thing which you have to put in to kind of thing, and that's the regulations and the rules of sport, but also the physiological requirements of each sport. So basically what we did... Uh, is that with each athlete we made that puzzle uh, and it was another puzzle, a different puzzle. So to to individually uh, uh, prepare them in our climate room uh, with a cooling protocol, and we just tested it because it's not one size to fit uh, f- uh, with, which fits uh, it fits it all. 
well, it's a different uh, sentence, uh, difficult sentence, um, but it's everything together. So some examples, uh, I think that's that's where you, where you were uh, adding, well, looking for. Um, we had a, a Dutch 5K runner uh, preparing, of course, for the Olympics. And um, we had uh, some measurements taken during the Dutch championships, which I think was two months before Tokyo to just measure his uh, core body temperature and to see actually in those less than 40 minutes, because uh, so one for 14 minutes, uh, it's uh, it's how, how much would the temperature rise? And we saw that he already reached 40 degrees Celsius. And that gave us the insight that we really needed to cool him down, uh, even though most of the literature goes about, it goes uh, through uh, about 10K or road races in uh, cycling or a marathon, of course. But also in that 5K, we saw a big increase in, uh, in temperature so what we did we went to the climate room and uh, we gave him a, 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 an ice vest a cooling vest we gave him some ice slush we also did a, a, co a core body uh, uh, ice uh, bath so not a whole body but only a core body um, and we did that multiple times uh, during his warming up during the cold room at uh, the cold room in athletics uh, is a uh, is literally a room room where all athletes go to 20 minutes 25 minutes before the race uh, where they have to assembly and uh, and uh, wait until they can uh, perform so but in that time you can actually make use of the time to cool down again and to make your specific plan work uh, in competitions what, what, um, what does is the that, not yeah. not full body but um, core body? What what does that mean in terms of a, a cooling situation? Yeah, uh, that's a, that's a uh, it's not uh, published a lot about this uh, as far as I know. But uh, we've seen some practical examples, and basically the reason for this is uh, you only go lay down in uh, the ice bath or the, the cool water bath with the core. Uh, not with your legs because the legs they need to generate the power and we know that if you cool down the temperature of the the muscles uh, they will just not perform as well so you, you basically aim uh, you focus on uh, cooling down your, your core body and not on uh, your muscle uh, muscles in your legs so it's just uh, you have any kind of uh, uh, bath uh, you can use where you just uh, put your uh, legs outside your, your neck outside and your head outside and the rest uh, basically is in. Cool. So cool down. Is it, yeah, is it, yeah, did yeah. you know that one already? Or? No, no, no. I've not, not seen that. I can, I can imagine it in my head with legs flailing everywhere and uh, ice flying all over the place. But yeah. um, it's, it's, if, I've not heard of If you have a nice that. bath with a soft edge, it's, it's quite of a relaxed pose, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to do it, mate, but yeah, maybe someone else wants to. <laughs> Maybe, so, maybe, maybe. so how do you piece all of this together, right? So you said you said you were, you were testing this beforehand. The, the, did did it work? Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, uh, two things are important. We do measure quite a lot. So a couple of parameters, which I previously mentioned, uh, the core body temperature, the heart rate, stuff like that, uh, throughout the sessions, uh, but also the feeling of the athlete. So um, an athlete has to be comfortable of using this at the most important uh, time of his or her life, you know, preparing for the, the event maybe one hour later, 10 minutes later. So they have to be comfortable with it. So it's a combination of, of the, the parameters data we, we gather throughout those uh, cooling sessions combined with uh, the actual feelings of, uh, of those athletes. Uh, because yeah, well, you need to practice, you need to see if it's feasible to use actually. You need to see how your body reacts on, on those cooling methods. Uh, slush is one of the most potent uh, uh, cooling strategies. 
However, it has the, the tendency, if you use it in the wrong way, to maybe cause a brain freeze or to get stomach problems or intestine problems. So you don't want to have that just before uh, your most important race in four years. So practice and, uh, and, and see whether it's actually feasible uh, in, uh, in a practical session. I think that's some some excellent advice, and I think that's it in terms of the the time that we've got to go through all this super interesting stuff. Because I think we could probably go for another half an hour. But Sam, massive thanks for your time and effort today. I really appreciate it, and uh, look forward to speaking Thank to you soon. Well, uh, thanks for having me, and it was a pleasure. And I hope that uh, your listeners can take one or two things out of this and uh, can use it in their own practice. I'm sure they can, mate. So thank you very much. Cheers. Cheers. And that's it once again. A massive thanks to Sam for all of his hard work on today's podcast. I really appreciate it, and I'm sure you do at home too. Before you leave, I want to point you in the direction of our Coach Academy. Now, the Coach Academy is a series of lectures broken down into bite-sized chunks. So if you enjoyed today's podcast on physiology, get yourself in there completely for free using the link in the show notes, and you can discover loads of fantastic lectures on various topics within sports science. And of course, if you have enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to give us a like and a share on social media, and recommend us to a coach, a colleague, a friend, or even an athlete. That means that we can keep bringing the best possible guests and the best possible content. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks from me. I'm Matt Solomon for Science of Sport, and I'll speak to you next week.